This podcast is brought to you by YearToSuccess.com, a free online course on success. Enroll at YearToSuccess.com. Welcome to the Toastmasters Podcast, the official podcast of Toastmasters International. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Gazin, and welcome to another episode of the Toastmasters Podcast. Every year in August at the International Convention, Toastmasters has an accredited speaker finals. This year, they awarded six Toastmasters with the designation of accredited speaker. In part one of this two-part series, you'll hear from three of the newly minted accredited speakers, and they also just happen to all be from Canada. You'll hear from Angela Louie, Freddie Doctrum, and Joe Grondin. Please sit back and enjoy this episode with our newly minted accredited speakers. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Gazin, and on the line from Vancouver, British Columbia, we have one of our newly minted accredited speakers. Her name is Angela Louie, Distinguished Toastmaster and now accredited speaker. She's in the mental health field at Fraser Health, which is just outside of Vancouver. She's been a professional for over 25 years. She has an undergraduate degree in occupational therapy, a post-professional master's in occupational therapy. Angela's been a Toastmaster for almost 20 years. She's with Politically Speaking, a group based in Vancouver. In 2005, Angela placed second in the World Champion of Public Speaking, and in fact, the International Speech Contest Trophy for District 96 was named after her. Angela Louie, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations on achieving your accredited speaker designation. Thank you. And you got it in your hometown. Yes. How does that feel? Did that feel special for you? It was. It was really good. It was really good to have a hometown crowd. Excellent. So that must have been quite a journey. Tell us a little bit about your speaker journey. It's interesting because I look back on my records to see where I started. And it was Margaret Hope and John Noonan, who are accredited speakers, who put out a call to interested Toastmasters to learn about an accredited speaker program. And that was in 2004. So that was when this journey began. Uh, there were just a handful of us who were interested in learning about it. It wasn't until 2010 that I actually submitted all of my speaking engagements and my audio recording. At that time, it was only audio to Toastmasters International. So it was many years just to get through stage one. And uh, I didn't do my first live presentation. That was in Las Vegas in 2011. After that time, and I think, you know, when I started in 2004, I had been in Toastmasters for six years. I was looking for a challenge and the accredited speaker program was uh, the next challenge for me. After I did my first live presentation in Las Vegas, and I got uh, feedback that was in the end very helpful, but at the time hurt to hear, uh, I realized that I wasn't really sure that I would pursue completing the accredited speaker program. Um, so I really, I let it go for a number of years. And because the convention was in Vancouver this year, I thought, well, you know, what do I have to lose? It's in my hometown. Yeah, I might as well try again. You said something very interesting because in Toastmasters, we get feedback on all of our speeches, plus a lot of the things that we do. And you had mentioned that the feedback was so difficult. So what happened? How were you feeling? What was it that made you think, you know what, maybe I'm not going to do this? Two different things. When I prepared for the live presentation, I really struggled because my field is mental health. And the work that I do is training professionals and other staff in the mental health field. So it's very specific, and they need specific things that the general public doesn't. So when I was presenting to a Toastmaster audience, it's a, it's a general public audience, and I wasn't sure how to gear my presentation. So I tried to do both things. I tried to do something in on a mental health topic, but geared to a general public audience, and that really wasn't what they wanted feedback I got was that they didn't really see my expertise from the stage. They weren't sure who would pay me and the exact message I was giving. So it made me reconsider, you know, what I was doing. The reason why I let it go is because 
I realized that even though I thought I really wanted to be an entrepreneur, I really wasn't an entrepreneur. In my heart, being an entrepreneur wasn't what I wanted to pursue. That's why I let it go. What I do best is I get across ideas in a way that people can understand. So what I do in my work is what I'm good at. So when it came to Vancouver, in fact, this was the least stressful part of the whole journey, I decided I would not be listening to my Toastmaster friends for feedback about how to deliver my presentation to a general audience. I would listen to my own direction, and that was to do what I do in my work. I would do my presentation like I present it to the staff, and that would be that. And that's what I did, and that's what they wanted. Well, that's excellent. So let's actually, this is a good time to probably, let's talk a little bit about your presentation. Your presentation was called Recovery Centered Clinical System. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a recovery model. So it's a model that I heard about in, I think, 2005. And I brought it to my work site because I was very excited about the idea of bringing these recovery ideas in a simple way, because recovery is a very abstract philosophy and approach, and it's really hard to bring it down to something that can be concrete and implemented in an organization. So this was a model that I thought was simple, it had tools, you could get a hold of the ideas and actually implement it in an organization. Just to be clear, we're talking about the mental health field here. Yes. Okay. Yes, recovery in the mental health field. So it's been 10 years since I introduced this particular model that I I didn't actually create the model, but I introduced it to our health authority. They have been really working towards implementing these ideas in their organization. And I've been part of that culture shift. I think it's a very important field to talk about because when we talk about mental health, again, I'm not an expert in the field or, or an expert in the industry. I understand is that this is something that for years was something that really wasn't talked about that much. That's true. And I think if we look back decades ago, uh, the values of our society were different. You know, our values were to try and take care of people who were vulnerable and to protect them and keep them safe. And our way of doing that was to provide a kind of an insular environment for people. And I think, you know, I mean, there are a number of reasons why things have changed now, but our thinking has also changed about how we treat each other as human beings. So rather than as professionals or staff, us thinking that we know all the answers, we know how people need to live, and we're going to provide everything for you, uh, we want to treat people as, as human beings who also have ideas, desires for their life. They have their own hopes and dreams that we're not the experts necessarily in the best life for them. Okay, so people that had mental health issues, it was a situation before where it was like, okay, you're here, this is where you are, we're going to treat you as if this is the way you are, as opposed to, okay, let's see if we can change that, see if we can rehabilitate. Is that my understanding? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same in in the health field in general. You know, it used to be much more so that the doctor was the expert, the doctor told you exactly what you needed to do, and you needed to listen to the doctor. Um, now, I think there is much more move towards shared decision making. Uh, the patient actually has, you know, their own experience of their life, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. So it's a shared process. It's a collaborative process. So that's what we're moving towards in all areas of healthcare, mental health as well. Part of the curriculum that you were developing was not only about sharing information and creating learning opportunities, but it was also about changing the attitude in the way, in the way the staff are actually practicing. How did you go about doing that? What I really wanted to do was not just to give people information, because if people just learn information in their head, it actually doesn't translate into what they do. I knew what I needed to do was to change people in how they felt and in creating some kind of emotional transformation. So a lot of what I have presented in the training is some metaphors that people can grasp onto, and that helps people shift their perspective. What am I actually dealing with? I'm dealing with a person who's been 
hurt or devastated or traumatized and they're healing and I'm helping the healing process. And it helps them take ideas that are very abstract and hopefully bring them down to a real observable behavior that they can do something with. So I really wanted to bring it down to emotions and observable behavior and steps that they could take. The one was about the walk in the woods. I remember that from the presentation. Maybe share with us a little bit about how that one worked. Yeah. So I started off with just imagining that people are walking in the woods. Uh, Usually people are very relaxed. And then I, I have them imagine what it would be like to walk into a forest fire. And people are usually, you know, a little bit jolted with that idea. And the people that they're serving, people with mental illness, I have them imagine that they experience that mental illness like a forest fire. So then they can start to pair the experience of having a mental illness as a devastating event. And then our impact on that experience. So somebody who has been through a forest fire, devastated, it's burnt out, and how we actually treat them at that point. You know, do we actually, you know, help them to heal, help nurture those little plants that grow spontaneously, or are we trampling them down? And I suggest that our history has been to trample the little plants down and that we need to change that. So that the picture that people can formulate in their head helps them to change their perspective about their work and what their purpose is. And that's what I want. I could imagine, because of course you use the word, (laughs) you use the word imagine quite a bit. This is a three-day program and you basically boiled it down to 20 minutes. How did you do that? Well, you know, that is the beauty of a metaphor or a story that you can get the whole idea of something very quickly. And I think that's how people are moved. You know, they can grasp on that to that idea and they can understand a purpose or a direction. I felt listening to it that the 20 minutes was fairly comprehensive. And I know when you mentioned that it was actually part of an extended program, I thought, wow, it must have been a lot of work because Sometimes it's really hard to cut down. It's always easy to make things longer, but the challenge is always to bring it in and make it tight and actually have a great cohesive program just in a short time. It was a quick overview, (laughs) but hopefully it got, you know, a little bit of the message across some of the depth that you could go into. I found it valuable in learning a little bit more about the mental health field, but I've also thought it was a great exercise for any Toastmaster that finds himself in a situation where that they are just flooded with information or they've got, sorry, they have five minutes or two minutes to present something, but yet they might have an hour or two hours or 10 hours worth of material. I think that happens with a lot of people because we know a lot of information, especially if we've been in a field, we know a lot of information people tend to put too much information in too short of a time period. Because when you're an audience member, there's only so much that you can take in. And if you're flooded, then you start to tune out. It's an art trying to find the right amount of information and the right approach to take. Now, I know you had said at one point you stopped getting feedback from your fellow Toastmasters, but were there other accredited speakers or were there other people that helped you along the way? Uh, Yes. Well, uh, Margaret Hope... So when we began, there were there were a handful of us, and she was our uh, mentor, I guess, you know, just giving us support and tips and suggesting how we could uh, get started with this whole process. When I was preparing for the live presentations, um, Cheryl Rausch was somebody who I connected with, and she was very supportive, gave me uh, some good feedback and just, you know, helped me think through the process. It was really nice. And then after I did my live presentation, Johnny Campbell was, I think it was Johnny Campbell who was the uh, chief judge at the time. And he chatted with me, you know, after the event was over, just telling me about the feedback and, you know, what it meant. On that note, what one piece of advice would you give someone who's thinking of taking the accredited speaker journey? Just one. (laughs) (laughs) Just one. One thing I would uh, I would say is to to know what your purpose is for doing this, because that will help you, you know, hone your message. You know, if you know your purpose, then you can think about who who is going to hear your message. Well, that makes sense. It's like doing any speech. What's the point of your speech? Absolutely. I mean, my purpose has changed 
since I, when I started to now, it's definitely changed. <laughs> do you know what your purpose is now? <laughs> well, you know, my purpose at work when I do these uh, presentations and when I do them outside of my um, my regular work is to change minds and to change a culture. That's been my purpose. But I think when I started the accredited speaker program, I was trying to just achieve something that I thought I was supposed to want, which was to be sort of an entrepreneur professional speaker. Like I saw, you know, maybe some of the world champions being, you know, just an entrepreneur professional speaker. That's not really me. My whole focus has has shifted somewhat from that. And on that note, how can people reach you if they want to find you? I am on Facebook, uh, just under Angela Louie. I have a website, uh, www.angelalouie.com. My email is probably the, the best way to get a hold of me, DTM at shaw.ca. And that's Louie, L-O-U-I-E. Right. Angela Louie, thank you so much for spending the time on the program today. Congratulations on achieving your accredited speaker designation. And thank you very much for contributing to improving the education in the mental health field. Thanks so much, Greg. It was great talking to you. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Gazin, and I have on the line a newly minted accredited speaker. Her name is Freddie Dogtrum. She's from Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Freddie has over 30 years' experience helping people build their lives, careers, and retirement futures. She's a registered retirement consultant, a professional retirement planner, a certified career development practitioner, and a certified personality trainer. She has memberships in a number of associations, including CAPS, the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, the Global Federation of Professional Speakers, and the Canadian Institute of Financial Planners. Freddie's been a professional speaker for more than 20 years, delivering keynotes, workshops, professional development, and train-the-trainer sessions, which I can say I've been a part of. She's delivered numerous keynotes, and I'd like to mention just a couple because they have interesting titles like Not All the Monkeys Are in the Zoo and The Chosen Frozen, Surviving and Thriving Life in the Arctic. I think we can certainly see a theme here. Freddie's been a Toastmaster since 2002, received her Distinguished Toastmaster designation in 2009, number of Toastmaster accolades including Rookie of the Year, Toastmaster of the Year, Evaluation Contest, and Table Topic Contest winner. Freddie Doctorum, welcome to the Toastmasters podcast. Well, good morning, Greg, and welcome back to you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on achieving your accredited speaker designation. Well, thank you, Greg. It was certainly an interesting journey. The process started in 2010 when I submitted my first audio tape for Level 1, but the tape wasn't a good enough quality, so I didn't pass. So back I come to the drawing board, and I read the rules. <laughs> it said, you know, it has to be good quality, it has to be a certain length, etc., Life got busy for a few years, but then I started working on it again in 2013-2014, and the requirements had changed from an audio tape now to a videotape, and it had to be a raw, unedited videotape of a real presentation in front of a real paying audience. So I started videotaping my presentations and finally got one that was good quality, it was the right length, it was unedited, it had a great introduction and I sent it in. Now, before we go into detail, I want to put things into perspective. I want to ask you about not necessarily your presentations, but you have this moniker, this thing that people call you, the Tundra Lady. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> I spent six years living in the Arctic. And for folks around the world that don't know exactly where the Arctic is, this is the area that is north of the Arctic Circle. In other words, I was living right up on top of the world. This is an area that gets very, very cold in the winter, and the sun never comes up. And in the summer, it stays very, very warm because the sun never goes down. This is an area where polar bears live. In the winter, you can take a glass of water, go outside, throw it into the air, and it's so cold that the water freezes before it hits the ground. Well, this is the area that's called the tundra, and it was some of my audience members that dubbed me as the tundra lady because I would tell stories about my work there and the people and, and some of the life lessons I learned as I was 
an ice road trucker, and some people around the world have seen that program on TV. So the moniker, the Tundra Lady, just really, really stuck with me. Another reason I brought this up ahead of time was because your presentation is about retirement, and I was thinking that probably not a lot of people would want to retire to the Arctic, where the water freezes practically after it leaves the glass. Well, it's interesting you should think that, because in my years living up there, there were quite a number of people who had chosen, and these were not people that were born and raised in the Arctic, but they had moved to the northern areas for work or because a spouse was working, and they were choosing to retire there. It's a really beautiful and very unique part of the planet. It's much more laid back and relaxing and you know you kind of get into this lifestyle and it does work well for some people for their retirement. That's probably true. I'm just thinking about the arthritis and the aching bones creeping in and figuring that the heat would probably do a little better. Getting back to your presentation, your retirement prescription, it takes more than money. Tell us a little bit about that presentation. A lot of the work that I've been doing in recent years is with folks that are wanting to make that movement from employment and transition to retirement and they're not really sure what they need to do, what they need to look after, how they need to plan. The financial services industry has truly done an exceptional job of getting the message out about the financial requirements for you know, getting your money in order for when you retire and you don't have the income from business or employment. But what's really been missing is the other half of the formula, which is your life, your lifestyle. What are you going to do with your time? What are you going to do with your relationships? Where are you going to live? What about medical? What people were telling me is that the number one concern that they had was life purpose. What am I going to do? And secondly, their identity. Who am I going to be? Especially professionals. You know, they say, well, I was a teacher. I was a doctor. I was a lawyer. I was a professional speaker. Who am I now? People started giving me that feedback. There was a top 10 list of information that I was getting back from the workshops that I was conducting. And so when I was crafting this presentation and bringing the information together for the accredited speaker, I thought, well, let's have a little bit of fun with the model. <laughs> yes. The, the stories I told in the presentation, they were all true stories from real people that had given me permission to tell their story. And the character, Brad, is the one that really motivated this because he said, I just wish that there was a prescription, a pill that I could take so that I could just you know, get on with my retirement life. I went, oh, Hill. Ooh, that's a good acronym because it supported the purpose and the identity. The other two elements, the legacy and the legend, also came from this top 10 list that I'd pulled together from the participants. The whole notion of legacy, in other words, your footprint, what you're leaving behind, that is where I started pulling some of the other bits and pieces together because for life planning purposes, as I said in the presentation, there's the three critical elements. First of all, what are you leaving behind at work? You know, what are they going to say about you when you're no longer there? Are you leaving your knowledge? Are you leaving an impact on some young people? You know, can you mentor? What is the footprint you're going to leave? The second piece of it was the passing on of items and articles within families. And I use the example, you know, the family Bible where the history is listed or, you know, special articles or artifacts. It's interesting, when I was writing the article for the Canadian Institute of Financial Planners, I was talking about how right now we have two generations that are downsizing. We've got our seniors in their 80s and, and 90s that are moving oftentimes from their family home or their transition home to facility that will provide them adequate care. Well, they've still got a bunch of stuff, so this stuff is going to your thrift stores, etc. Their kids that are in their 60s and 70s are transitioning from the, fam the big family home, and now they're going into retirement communities and condos, and you've got the place in Arizona, etc. 
So they're getting rid of a lot of stuff. So the message is start to downsize and, and move off those regular things that your heirs just don't want you to leave to them. I also remember you talking about the diamonds. Tell us about the diamonds. Oh, my goodness. On Valentine's Day, I was listening to CBC Radio, which is a Canadian national radio station, and they were interviewing these young women about, you know, did you want to get a diamond for Valentine's Day? Or, and several of them said, well, I don't really like diamonds. <laughs> I was shocked. Because I grew up in the era, as many people did, that, you know, diamonds were a girl's best friend. There was even a movie by that title. And as I was listening, this one girl went on to say that she had been gifted with her grandmother's diamond wedding ring set. And she said, I really didn't have any use for it. So I went online and I sold it. And with the money I got from my grandma's ring, I bought golf clubs for my boyfriend. Ouch. Ouch. I'm thinking, what would grandma have had to say about that? What we're finding is that even some of the secondhand stores are being very selective. It's like, no, we don't want this. I go, you don't? I mean, someone, mm-hmm. it's good. Someone can use it. And in some of the major centers, they now charge you to donate your unwanted items. Your target audience was for Canadians aged 50 to 65. But it sounds to me from what you're describing now and what you described in your presentation that what to do when you retire and how to go about doing things is really a global problem. Is that, is that true? Yes, you're absolutely right, Greg. Under the rules for the accredited speaker presentation, one of the things that judges look for is to see who is the target audience. I chose to be very specific with my target audience, that they were Canadians, that they were in this particular age bracket. However, you're absolutely correct. It it is global. As people transition from one life phase to the next, there's certain elements that need to be given care and consideration. And moving from the engaged employed years to the next phase, you know, your next career, which could be leisureite, retiree, does require certain elements of planning. The third piece of legacy that I talked about was the one that I received the most buzz from, and that's looking after your digital legacy. Even lawyers are not putting into people's wills the directions for their online presence. And this is something that's absolutely critical. It just needs to be looked after. So your Facebook accounts, you know, et cetera, if something were to happen to you, who have you designated, empowered, and legally given the responsibility of closing or monitoring those accounts? Well, there's a legal aspect, plus the fact is, what about all the sign-ons and the passwords? That might be fun just trying to find those. Well, one of the strategies that is suggested is to use one of the, the password managers, the, your designate. It doesn't have to be your estate executor, but if you have somebody, and usually somebody under 35 <laughs> that knows about this stuff, but have them designated and give them as an addendum to your will. So it's still locked up and safe, but the password to your password manager. So like all estate plans, this piece of it, the digital legacy, needs to be thought about, considered, and you know, have a consultation with the individual you're designating. But you also talked about working legacy and personal legacy. You talked about both of those. Is there one or the other that people seem to have a tendency of forgetting about or not really thinking that they have an opportunity to leave? The work legacy is the area, I believe, that folks don't really see that they can have very structured and planful input towards. For example, the last employment that I had, I was working on a, a project team and we were doing this huge project. And you get enmeshed in it and you don't really notice that people are watching you and that you're having the chance to teach others and to mentor. But At my retirement party from that place of employment, I was quite surprised that this is what people remembered about my 30 years was this last project. And the footprint 
that I had left, you know, the, the processes and the manuals that I had written and the people that I'd supported and encouraged. And I got thinking that if that had been a little bit more planful, could I have had more of an input or impact on a young person just starting out in their career? Could I have done more to support that person, you know, teach them some of those little tricks that are in the back of your mind that you just sort of do out of habit because you've been around since the beginning of time? It's almost like going back to a really old edition of the Toastmaster magazine from 1995 or 1996. You pull out these golden nuggets that you go, oh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I could probably use that. You mentioned people who may not be in that sort of ready-to-retirement age or that 50 to 65. What would be something that you could recommend, maybe those who are not there yet, what they could do now to start preparing for down the road? I think that the single most important thing that folks of all ages need to tend to is taking a look at their family stories. We're losing our stories. You go and talk to somebody and say, so tell me about your family. And if you're not from Canada, where I live, then obviously there's a story as to how your family got here. And people don't know. They don't know their family story. Well, tell me about your grandparents. Don't know. Wasn't talked about. I think that this is tragic that we are losing our family stories. Before TV and the Internet and Facebook, when everybody gathers around the living room looking at their own personal devices, Families used to sit around the table and they would talk and they would share and, and they would laugh and they'd tell the stories about the olden days. This is what we are missing. My personal belief is that it's really hard to build a good future if you don't know what your past is. So I think that at any age, you can start exploring your family history. In the presentation, I, I shared the book that my dad had written, but not everybody has to write a book. You know, you can do the video, you can do the, the snapshots, you can do the scrapbook, you can do an online album that people can contribute to from different parts around the world. There's just so many ways of collecting it. We certainly have lots of stories. There's certainly a lot of food for thought. As we wrap up today's session, Freddie, I was just wondering, perhaps, once again, congratulations on achieving your accredited speaker designation. Thank you. What advice would you give someone who is thinking perhaps of embarking on their accredited speaker journey? First of all, if this is something that is of interest to you and you are a professional speaker or an emerging professional speaker, do it. It's educational. It's developmental. It will really, really help you bring your A game. Secondly, read the rules. That was where I had a couple of hiccups along the way is I thought I knew what the rule said, but the rule doesn't say, Freddie, interpret this however you feel. It says, here's the rule. The references from your previous clients. Previous clients are absolutely awesome people, but they're busy people. And sometimes they say, oh, yes, absolutely, I will fill out the referral form and get it sent in, but they get busy and forget. So you have to keep following up. But the most important thing, I believe, is to reach out. The accredited speaker community are fabulous people. I reached out to folks like Bob Huey and Cheryl Roush and uh, Ross McKay, some of the people that had gone before me. Absolutely phenomenal support. When you go on the accredited speaker site, you can click on and see the accredited speakers. You can see our profiles and you can then look and see, are you willing to mentor new people that want to be accredited speakers? Many folks say yes. And so those are the ones we're open to being reached out to speak more in detail about what our experience was, some of the lessons that we learned along the way, and to be there and to coach and to mentor and support. And the great news is, is that if you're on the accredited speaker track and you reach out to one of us, it's free. And one final question, how can people reach you? My email is... Freddie, F-R-E-D-D-I, at freddiespeaks.com or through my website, freddiespeaks.com. Freddie Doctrum, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Greg, it has been my delight. I always look forward to your programs. Thank you for inviting me. Today we're speaking with Joe Grondon. He's from Moncton, New Brunswick, on the east coast of Canada. 
He joined Toastmasters 15 years ago with a dream of being an inspirational speaker. He's been a District Toastmaster of the Year twice. He's had a couple of Triple Crowns. He's a member of four clubs and currently with the Bagtown Babblers. He's currently an area director, which Joe says is his last checkmark for completed his Distinguished Toastmasters designation. He's also been a finalist twice for the World Championship of Public Speaking. Joe's been a teacher administrator since 1983 and holds a master's degree in teaching and administration, as well as a principal certificate. He's taught all grade levels and worked for several years with at-risk youth. Joe is a science and physical education subject coordinator for three years prior to his retirement. And upon retirement, Joe was honored with the Garth Wade Career Award for Physical Education. He's the author of the book, Living in Harmony with Our Children, and is a keynote speaker who advocates on their behalf. And every Saturday night, if he's not speaking somewhere, Joe and his wife Gwen are world-class ballroom dancers. <laughs> Congratulations, Joe, and welcome to the Toastmasters podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Joe, what were you thinking? Well, okay, wait a second. Before the mail comes in and the emails, that was the title of Joe's presentation. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, why did you decide to take the plunge? The accredited speaker program fascinated me a number of years ago when I saw the accredited speaker program and the speakers that were speaking at the convention. And I was enthralled by the professionalism of their speaking ability and the fact that it's more geared towards the professional speaking world, the world outside of Toastmasters. Toastmasters has taught me all the tools that I need to be an inspirational speaker, but the accredited speaker program helps to hone and connect to the outside world on that professional basis. Now, as you were going through the journey, who did you call on for help? Oh, I called on Dilip, and he was my major mentor, past international president. He was wonderful. He was able to mentor me and guide me towards the speech that I needed to, to deliver. My Toastmaster, my dist District 45, they have all been very supportive of me. And anytime I wanted to practice the speech, they were more than willing, whether it was at TLI, leadership training, clubs, everybody were supported me, even in the World Championships of Public Speaking, they were always there. Now you've gone through that process twice, so when did you get to that level? 2010 was the first time I journeyed to the World Championships. I've been there six times in the semifinals. Wow. And I was there in 2010, enjoyed the journey, did not really expect to make the finals because there are some phenomenal speakers in our Toastmaster world. And when I made the finals, I was just enthralled by it. It took me five years to get back to the finals. And still today, when I watch the World Championships, I would say to my fellow Toastmasters, there's so much to learn. It doesn't matter what caliber of speaker you are, there's just so much to learn. Obviously, there's a lot of prep that has to go into an accredited speaker presentation. I mean, it's much longer than five to seven minute world champion speech. How did the process of going through the ranks of the world championship help you with this presentation? That's a great question because that, the world championship of public speaking helped me get adjusted to the big stage. To be on that stage and in front of that many people, it's not, it wasn't new to me. So to have that kind of training and being on the big stage and being able to do that in front of a large audience prepped me for the accredited speakers program. Now the major difference is, as you said, it's a 20 minute presentation. So there's more time to make a mistake. <laughs> so, the so the practicing and the, the flow of the speech and I'd have to say the flow of the speech had to be bang on because if it didn't flow, there's more of a chance that you'll lose a connection. And I wasn't using PowerPoint. I wasn't using, I had props, but I wasn't using anything to remind me of where I was in the speech. So there was a lot of practice and a lot of readjusting and tweaking and making sure that I was within the time frame. They give you 20 minutes. And it's amazing how much we do come up with and realize, oh my gosh, I got 25 minutes of material here. I have to cut. And cutting a speech is hard because all of what we do as speakers, we think everything is important. We think everything, because <laughs> we're passionate about everything we do in a speech. And to cut it was the hardest job for me. Yeah, we all fall in love with our words. Although there were five other speakers in this particular situation, you're not competing with them. You're really competing against a standard of excellence. And that's the joy of the process. There was no pressure on who was going to be on stage and sharing the stage 
with you. I always say whether it's a competition or accredited speaker, you're sharing the stage with fellow speakers. And that's the joy of this process. You're competing against yourself. You're competing to make yourself a better speaker. And that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with the accredited speaker program, because it helped me hone my speaking ability even more, even beyond the world championship of public speaking. And I became more of me. Sometimes in the contests, it's very easy to do a speech and it doesn't become you. And you want to make sure you're always yourself on stage. And I've been lucky even in the world championships that I've had mentors to say, okay, Joe, that's not you. You have to swing it more towards who you are. And the accredited speaker program is the best program to help tweak that you in, in a speech. Looking at your bio, looking at your history, having been there present at the live presentation and then doing the replay this morning on Toastmasters On Demand, I can see that the presentation is really a lot. Not about you, but you are in that presentation. Tell us a little bit about the presentation. Oh, the pres I'm very passionate with this presentation because I advocate for children. I have a passion to help children. And I think part of the problem in our world is we, we don't understand where our children are coming from. And I wanted to create something that will catch people's attention and the hats and the different characters of the different parts of the brain. And when I came up with that story and all the different characters in the story to help explain different parts of the brain and how children developed, to tell you the truth, my wife looked at it and she said, Joe, that is a really good speech. You should use that. And she was the main instigator of saying, she knows what's good and what's not good. And when my wife says something is good, I know I have something. <laughs> and that, that story came up. I just started using my creative juices to produce that story and what represents each part of the brain. And that's why the different hats. What I noticed is that you did have some narrative. You did have, you did have a few stories woven in between. But the main story or the main, yeah, I guess, I, I guess we could call it the main story, really revolved around four characters. It appeared that it was written for virtually any age level. But I guess it was sort of written on a fairy tale level, but yet I think it appealed to just about everybody. So could you share a little bit about the story itself and just some of the characters? And I'll, I'll try not to laugh <laughs> because it is funny. <laughs> well, we used the first character was King Frontal. And King Frontal actually represents the prefrontal cortex of our brains. Now, King Frontal basically wasn't all there. And I, used, <laughs> and I used two different caps for King Frontal. And I used, first of all, the Toronto Maple Leafs cap. And it's obvious that he wasn't all there. And it's amazing how many Toronto Maple Leafs fans were in the audience. And that was, a, that was a big hit. But the whole idea behind that story and the story about Timmy, Timmy was a student that I use as an example for each part of the brain, is the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed and they're not all there when they reason things out. They, they act before they think, and that's because the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. And I used the story about Timmy in the classroom, and he was always in trouble. And one day, it was a long day, and I asked Timmy, he was just standing at my door, I was the vice principal, and I said, Timmy, what did you do now? And he looked at me and said, here's the thing, Mr. Grondon, my teacher yelled out that she was going to get ugly. All I said was, too late. <laughs> <laughs> and I had all I could do, do not to laugh at Timmy because I'm the vice principal, right? And I wanted to make sure that at least he left the office and then I close the door and laugh. That's what children do. They will act before they think. And it was an example of the prefrontal cortex. And then we move on to Prince Dopey. Now, Prince Dopey was obviously King Frontal's son and Prince Dopey took a lot of risk. Now, I used the goofy hat for... Prince Dopey, and that usually gets a lot of laughs, and I love using those personal stories. But Prince Dopey represents the dopamines in our brains, and it's the reason why children take dangerous risks, unnecessary risks, and it's to connect the dopamines to that reason. And all the way through the presentation, the different characters is connecting the brain, their development of the brain, and the reason why our children do what they do. Because how many times have we looked at a child and said, what were you thinking? True. And in actual fact, that's what the, the purpose of the whole presentation was. 
And just to add a little bit more context for those of you who are outside Canada, the Toronto Maple Leafs sadly are a hockey team that have had a challenge to to win the, the Grand Championship, which in Canada is the Stanley Cup. In fact, this is Canada's 150th anniversary, and it was during Canada's centennial 50 years ago in 1967 that the Maple Leafs actually won the Stanley Cup. That was actually the last time that the Maple Leafs actually won the Stanley Cup. The other thing that's interesting is as you're sharing the story about the characters is that each time you change characters, you also changed your hat. As you spoke faster, you were changing your hats faster. And every time, for example, you would say, King Frontal, you would always have to add who wasn't all there. And of course, that would just kill people laughing, but it would also keep them engaged. And of course, uh, Prince Dopey, although he, was using a, although he was using a licensed character, you didn't actually use the no. name Goofy, which was actually quite smart. So tell us a little bit more about Mylan the White Matter Wizard. No, <laughs> Mylan the white, the white Wizard. Oh, the White Wizard, okay. Yeah. Now, Mylan, Mylan, I had a white hat, sort of a Canadian toque, what they call it. And myelin represents the white matter of the brain. And myelin, if there's going to be any emotional irregularities, it's going to happen in the white matter in our children. And I talk a lot about emotions and how it connects to the white matter, how it connects to hormones, how it connects to everything within that brain that has to do with emotions. So myelin's very, very emotional. And myelin actually works with Prince Dopey because King Frontal thought that if Prince Dopey could control his emotions, he wouldn't take as many risks. Basically, all that happened, Prince Dolby continued to take risks, except with a lot of emotion. And then we got into more emotion because Prince Dolby fell in love with Princess Sarah T. Now, I used <laughs> a, a tiara for that one. You remember that one? I love it. And I have the tiara on representing Princess Sarah T, who gets kidnapped by a dragon and doesn't know what she's going to do. She becomes very depressed, knowing what her fate was going to be. So, but Prince Dopey, who took a lot of risk and was very emotional, and now I have Prince Dopey's hat on, he goes to rescue Princess Sarah T. To end that story, Prince Dopey and Princess Sarah T marry at the age of 21, and all of a sudden, King Frontal, his favorite hockey team, became the Montreal Canadiens. So it was obvious at that point that he was all there. <laughs> And you and I, I think, are much all Canadian fans. So I think. <laughs> and then Prince Dolby didn't take as many risks. Mylan the Magnificent, the White Wizard, wasn't as emotional. And Princess Sarah T went back to being the calmest person in the land. Now, Princess Sarah T represented the serotonins in our brains. And serotonins allow us as adults to face crisis in a relatively calm fashion. Children, however, have low serotonins to begin with and they deal with crisis differently than we do. For instance, the example I used was if there's a breakup of a boyfriend or girlfriend, they could see that as a death in the immediate family. So the, the harsher the crisis, the more serotonins get depleted. And if the children, if their serotonins get low enough, they get into depression. Now the good news is, it's a well-known fact that physical activity raises serotonins. And if we can convince our children to be more physically active, or we can teach our children to be more positive. It helps build those serotonins to help them make sure they don't become depressed when they face a crisis. It's interesting when you think about it, and I keep thinking back to the title, you know, what were you thinking? I think quite often as adults, we evaluate kids based on values that we have, or perhaps things that happened when we grew up, and that we need to really find out a reason. Because I know a number of times you had referred back to figuring out what the reason is as opposed to it being an excuse because quite often as kids right parents say something kids say something oh that's just an excuse and i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up too because there's and sometimes we don't know what that reason is and the whole idea behind the presentation is to show a little bit of compassion above and beyond the call of duty if we care beyond that reason we know there's always going to be a reason. A lot of times as adults, and like you even said, we grew up differently. And we sort of maybe push our values on our children and say, well, we never did that when we were kids and you're not going to do that now. Now we're getting in more of the understanding of what were you thinking and how many times I've said that to my children, how many times I've said that to a child, and then realize, well, wait a minute, let's, there's got to be a reason. And to find out that reason is good, but to care that at the end of the presentation, I had all the hats on my head. And I said, you know what? There are many reasons, and we may not know what those reasons are. The best thing we can do with our children is that they feel that we will care beyond those reasons. And I think that's how we connect with our children. 
I think the presentation did have some really good humor in it, but I also felt that it had a really powerful message. I would assume that you work with at-risk youths, so I would assume that this type of philosophy would probably work fairly well, and you employ that, I assume? When I worked with at-risk youth, they, quite honestly, taught me more than what I taught them. Yes, you graduate from university, you have your teacher's license, and you go and teach. But these children could not fit in the regular school systems. We have a lot of children out there that do not fit in the regular school system. And these children taught me how to connect. They taught me how, and I had to work hard to making sure that I don't take failure lightly. Failure is always a lesson to be learned. And I failed a lot when I was a teacher and working with children. But these at-risk children taught me the tools necessary to first of all connect with the children first. And then once you have that connection, once they have respect for you, when we grew up, we walked into a classroom and it was automatically assumed that we would respect the teacher. I'm saying today, it has to be a two-way street. They need, we need to show them respect and they need to show us respect. If we don't show them respect by trying to understand where they're coming from, and we don't make those connections, there's a lot of children out there that we will lose. And I think now we have to make that paradigm shift to making sure we make those connections. And that was the whole purpose behind this presentation. It's something that I'm so passionate about and that I do in my keynotes and I work with teachers and I even go into school. I do that presentation in front of students. And students will come up to me and say, I never realized my brain worked like that before. And it's interesting the conversations I have with students is that there's always a reason because students feel that there's something wrong with them, that there's a missing piece somewhere. And when they realize, hey, this is my natural development. There is nothing wrong with me. My brain is developing similar to other children, maybe faster, maybe slower, maybe differently but eventually we'll all reach the same point at the end of this. Joe, it sounds like this presentation isn't just part of your repertoire. It seems that it's part of your person, it's part of your being. Oh, definitely. Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Joe, if someone wants to find a little bit more about you or about your journey through the Accredited Speaker Program, how can they get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me through my web, well, I have a website, joegrande.com. My email, I always connect with people through email, and that's jgrondon at nb.sympatico.ca. And I've had people give me a call, and I have no problem in sharing all that information with anybody that wants to learn more about whatever in Toastmasters. Anything I can give back to Toastmasters, because I owe so much to Toastmasters, I will give back. Joe, I now know what you were thinking. <laughs> Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thank you. All the best. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Bo Bennett, host of the Toastmasters podcast. Back in 2004, I wrote the book Year to Success, the most complete and practical book on success ever written. Thanks to today's technology, I've turned the book into an online course. Here's the best part. The course is 100% free. Enroll at yeartosuccess.com and work on one personal development idea each day for the next eight months or so. That address is yeartosuccess.com. See you there.